1: Science is the. I it felt on this right. so and I just happy. thought, well. I had figured
2: it wow. out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey
0: everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are all about the romantic side of science because Valentine's Day is coming up real soon. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. In this episode, both our storytellers look at their relationships and the love they have for their chosen person through a more scientific lens, which isn't often the way we're used to looking at love. You know, if history is anything to go on. Love is usually the artist's and philosopher's domain. In fact, it wasn't until the 1940s that social scientists created tools designed to measure this emotion. It also wasn't until recently that we even learned that there are chemicals in our brain that create those wonderful and horrible feelings of love. So while it may have taken scientists a while to acknowledge that there is this thing called love— Love is a lot more scientific than you might think, and it turns out examining love scientifically has created a new understanding about the emotion and relationships, especially for our storytellers. Anyway, our first story is from Lauren Silverman. It was recorded in her home in Oakland, California.
2: A while back, I was on this hike with my husband in Northern California. The trail covered all sorts of terrain, through redwoods and eucalyptus, and then at the end of the forest, it spit us out onto a cliff with a sandy beach below and a 30 foot waterfall that cascaded down to the sand and wound its way to the ocean. When we got to the beach, I saw something shiny flapping around. So I got closer, and it was a silver and pink fish a rainbow trout that was stranded. It was gasping. And the way it opened and closed its lips, gulping for air, looked almost human. I shouted for Paolo to come check it out. He ran over, glanced at the fish in the sand, then up at the waterfall, just as perplexed as I was. Most fish do not leap from waterfalls trying to enter the ocean. I wondered if the fish was lost or suicidal, or had fallen from the sky. I scooped it up. I knew the fish needed to be back in water, but I wasn't sure which way to throw it, or if it would survive. I decided on the ocean and hurled it into the waves. Then I followed Paulo back to the trail. Paulo and I had been taking long walks together for the past 10 years, ever since we met on a sidewalk in Buenos Aires, Argentina. When I first saw him, he was juggling a scuffed-up soccer ball with a friend, outside of the apartment where I lived. We were both in our early 20s, still hungry enough to devour the world. I didn't care that Paolo spoke no English and had no bank account. To his credit, he didn't care that I was a capitalist Yankee who didn't like red meat. At that point, our differences were intriguing. Paolo showed me what life could be like if I loosened up and slowed down. When I speedwalked through the plazas, he'd ask, ¿Por qué estás apurada? Why are you rushing? He came from a tiny town where people always stopped to say hello. His presence softened me. After spending six months together in Argentina and then dating long distance, we decided to try and live together in the United States. Paulo borrowed money for a work visa and bought his first plane ticket. It was crazy, like jumping off a waterfall. But he made it, landing thousands of miles away in the Northern Hemisphere. About three months later, on a lunch break from my internship at NPR and Paolo's new job, walking dogs, we got married so that we could stay together in the United States. Our honeymoon was the metro ride from Virginia back to Washington, D.C. And that was fine with me. I didn't care about a wedding or really even think about what our life together would look like long term. Besides, I could see Paolo was adjusting to life in the U.S., There were subtle changes. I noticed Paolo learned to greet people by shaking hands instead of kissing cheeks. He tried new foods, like sushi, and even on a few occasions introduced himself as Paul. It could be cringy, but I saw him acclimating. In the first four years Paolo lived in the U.S., he returned home just twice. The economy in Argentina was a mess. And if I'm honest, a part of me didn't want it to improve. I worried he might be tempted to go back. Because as much as I loved visiting Argentina, the thought of permanently living there made my chest tighten and my stomach seize up. The life Paulo missed made me claustrophobic. All the cramped apartments, the impromptu barbecues or asados, and the get-togethers that always dragged into the morning. I'm an introvert and a somewhat individualistic person, which is why the South America I knew is not an America I felt at home in. So. For years, I took an extreme preventative measure aimed at keeping Paolo in the U.S. I became patriotic. And if you, like me, grew up in the Bay Area during the presidency of G.W. Bush, you'll understand that patriotism didn't come easy. But I tried. Look how simple it is to get a low-interest loan here, I'd say. I'd boast about kitchen technology— Look at all the people with dishwashers and garbage disposals. I thought it was rubbing off. Over the next few years, Paolo finished school, he got an engineering degree, and hatched plans to start a business. It seemed like he'd adapted, and I was really looking forward to the two of us finally settling down in my hometown of Oakland, California. But as soon as there was a chance to plant roots, he admitted he was feeling a familiar tug toward home. It was around that time that I saw the fish flopping about in the sand. And I don't know why, but even after we came home from that hike, I kept thinking about it. So I researched. And I learned that there's a name for fish crazy enough to leap from waterfalls into oceans. Anadromous fish. They migrate from freshwater rivers and lakes to the salty ocean and back to spawn. Like salmon. But what I saw, it was a rainbow trout. And unlike most other fish that migrate, only some rainbow trout decide to leave everything behind and make the journey to the ocean and back. The ones that leave, they undergo this remarkable transformation to survive in the salty water. They develop special cells in their gills and kidneys, their pink stripe fades, and they turn blue to camouflage. They get bigger and adjust their diets to eat squid and crab, and they get a new name. Steelhead. What I learned felt familiar, but researching about fish could only distract me from what was going on on dry land for so long. Paulo was talking more and more about moving back to Argentina. For years, it had just been the occasional comment I'd kill for a barbecue with my friends, or I miss playing chess in the park. But now it morphed into full blown manifestos that tore down America's work first culture and broken healthcare system. I decided to shelve our discussions of having kids and stop half-joking about baby names. He was rejecting anything that tied him to the United States, including me. Only the people closest to me dared to suggest that maybe the relationship had run its course. I wanted to blame Paulo's homesickness for our separation. But of course, it was much messier than that, Our personality differences also fed the widening gulf between us. The gap grew to be so large, I wondered if we'd ever been compatible in the first place. We went to couples therapy, tried to find common ground, but more and more, I was feeling like the anchor dragging him down. One night in 2019, more than 10 years after Paolo had flown 6,000 miles north to find me, he said he needed to find himself. He needed to return to Argentina, and he left. I was a mess. I'd cry when I'd see the dry second towel hanging in the bathroom, or when I'd cut tomatoes with the dull knives Paolo always sharpened. A lot of nights I stayed home and stared into my laptop, researching anadromous fish as if they too might slip away. It was around this time that I read something so remarkable about steelhead that I actually slapped my hands on my desk in disbelief. I learned that unlike salmon, which return to their native river to spawn and then die, steelhead trout are wired to survive and even make the journey to the ocean and back again. In other words, their trip home, it doesn't have to be one way. The thought gave me comfort. And then... Four months after Paolo and I split up, the phone rang. It was Paolo calling from Argentina. He said he had decided to return to California, to me. I couldn't help smiling. I was thinking about us, of course, but I was also thinking about the journey of the steelhead trout. I wasn't sure which way we were headed or if we'd survive, but I knew we were both ready to throw ourselves into the waves.
0: That was Lauren Silverman. Lauren is the Deputy Head of Society and Culture Programming at Gimlet. She's helped manage teams and produce shows such as Startup, Conviction, and How to Save a Planet. Before joining Gimlet, Lauren was a reporter covering health and science for NPR, Marketplace, and KERA in Dallas. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. Next week, our St. Louis show that was rescheduled because of bad weather in January is happening on February 13th. We also have shows in Atlanta, New York, and a special show at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Visit storyclutter.org slash shows for more details. We're also looking for stories for an exciting show we're doing in Sacramento, California. We teamed up with local storytelling show Capital Storytelling for a show on April 14th, and we need stories that involve some element of science and fits the theme of experimenting. It can be a loose fit, metaphorical fit, or literal fit. We want any story that shows the intersection of life with science in all forms. It can be serious, funny, lighthearted, sad, or a combination of any of those. If you think you have a story and you want to share it on stage on April 14th, pitch us. Send two to three paragraphs telling us your story to stories at storycollider.org by February 14th with capital storytelling in the subject line. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Next month, our science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez and education director Lily B are hosting a seminar on story archaeology, where they help you dig deep and uncover memories that are core moments to stories. Find out more at storyclutterorg education. You can always follow us on social media at Storyclider. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you haven't gotten your special someone a Valentine's Day gift, May I suggest some Story Collider merch? We have hoodies, tote bags, t-shirts, and more. Check out storycollider.org store for all our fun swag. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change your understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story is from Grant Bowen. It was recorded at Caveat in New York City in May 2022. The theme that night was Spring Awakening. Uh,
1: In December of 2019, uh, I was visiting my family in Alabama for the holidays. And one afternoon, we went over to visit my grandparents, Ditta and Daddy Y. I called my grandmother Ditta. Her real name was Sylvia, no one knows where Ditta came from. Uh, the best we can guess is that it was baby talk that stuck. Um, Ditta was sweet, loving, kind, like the perfect grandmother, but like, she also had a little bit of sass to her. Like to give you an example, uh, one of the first things I learned to say as a baby was you stupid idiot, because that's what she yelled at a driver that cut her off while I was in the back seat. Uh, she, you know, and it's that mixture of the, the, the sweetness and the sassiness that gave her this spark. Uh, she would cook lunch for us every Sundays. She would look after us when my parents were away. Uh, if I called her, she'd always answer with a, hey, buddy. Like, Ditta was always there when we needed her the most. Uh, and it was during this visit in 2019 that my grandfather, Daddy Y, told me that uh, he needed to tell me something. And so we went out onto their back deck and that's where he explained that Ditta had been diagnosed with vascular dementia, which was a shock. Like I knew that Ditta had had like a history of heart problems. She'd had a couple of surgeries, difficulty recovering from them, but I didn't realize any of that could result in dementia. And the way Daddy Y explained it, it was just the kind of condition that you hoped wouldn't get worse. And so in my head... I was anticipating making a lot more trips back home to help take care of her in 2020. Uh, I fly back to New York. The next thing I know it's March of 2020 and my boss is standing in front of my desk telling me that our office is about to temporarily shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. And as I step outside and start heading towards the subway to go home, My phone starts ringing, and I see that it's my aunt who tells me that Ditta has fallen in the bathroom and broken her hip. She's going to need intense surgery, a stench in physical rehab, only now all of that is going to involve being isolated from the rest of the family. And my stomach just sank. More information about this virus started coming out, Uh, and at the time I had just moved in with my fiance Marissa, Marissa is bright and funny and infectiously joyful, uh, but she's also very smart and a very practical planner. And on top of that, she lives with an autoimmune disease, so she was at risk. So we started taking all of this information really seriously. And so we sat down and we talked about it, and we just decided, okay, we're going to follow all of the CDC guidelines. We're staying here in New York. We're not getting on any public transit no airplanes, no big trips, unless it's like just you and me in a car. And I agreed. But unfortunately that meant I was gonna have to hear all of the news about Ditta, miles away from the rest of my family. Uh, We called her when she got out of physical rehab and we asked her how it was and some of that trademark sass came back. She pulled herself up. She was like, y'all, I was incarcerated. (laughs) And we laughed. But I couldn't help but notice that something was kind of off. Like a little bit of that spark had just been chipped away. Now, unfortunately, my family in Alabama was not getting the same information about this virus that I was getting in New York. Like here I was isolating and wiping down all of my groceries. Meanwhile, they were all going to Ditta's house all at once, all the time. Uh, So I had to rationalize my actions to myself. I was like, look, you're not just protecting yourself. You're protecting Marissa. You're protecting your family. You don't want to be the one who makes Ditta worse by going home. Uh, But as the year went on, Ditta seemed to get worse month by month. Uh, She eventually fell again and ended up going back to physical rehab where she did test positive for COVID and had to be temporarily hospitalized. And I was just worried that all of this was going to exacerbate her dementia more and more. And so I tried talking to my parents. I said, is there anything I can do? Can I send money? Can I, can I order food from up here? And they said, you don't worry about that. We've got that covered. All you can do is just try calling her more often. And that killed me. Because I would have given anything to be by her side the way the rest of them were. I did try calling more, but Ditta got to the point where she couldn't talk every day. Some days she would talk for a little bit and then trail off and never come back. Eventually she stopped eating. The last time I saw her was on her birthday, February of 2021. Uh, Of course, they were having a big party at the house and I FaceTime in and they passed the phone to her and I tried to be like, hey Ditta. And there's just this blankness to her stare. Like that spark was almost entirely gone. And 23 days later, I get the call that she's passed away. And at that point, I knew missing that funeral was out of the question. Marissa understood. So once again, she became the practical planner. She's like, okay, my parents live on Cape Cod. They've been safe this entire time. My dad can drive into the city, pick me up right before you get back, and then you can have two weeks to quarantine in our apartment after you get back. And I felt really confident about this plan. So I get on a plane for the first time in over a year and fly back to Alabama. And thankfully, everybody agreed to wear masks at the funeral. I tried to set my own boundaries. I tried to say, "Okay, no shaking hands, no hugs. You're just going to thank people for coming. And I followed none of that. Uh, basically people just walked up and just wrapped their arms around me telling me how sorry they were and I was thanking them and immediately running to the nearest bottle of hand sanitizer and just coating my hands with it eventually I make my way over to Daddy Y and he looks at me and he says she loved you and she knew that you loved her and we all understand why you couldn't be here for any of this and on the one hand that was good to hear but As I stood in front of Ditta's casket, looking at this malnourished body that I didn't even recognize anymore, I just felt this guilt just burning through me and couldn't help but worry that maybe because of her condition, that she didn't understand why I wasn't there for the last year of her life. We get to the end of the funeral. I fly back to New York and I spend two weeks in the apartment alone, And grieving. It's a Friday afternoon in March of 2021. I'm past the two week quarantine, and it's almost a year since the pandemic was declared a national emergency. At this point, I've been going into my office twice a week, and I'm still staying off public transit. So I am walking three miles uptown and downtown twice a week with my mask on. Uh, My phone starts ringing. I see it's Marissa. It's the day before she's supposed to come home. And so I answer and I go, hey, I'm really excited to see you tomorrow. And she says, hey, my mom has a fever of 102. And I go, well, is it, is it, is it just a cold? Is, 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 it, is it COVID? Like, can you go get tested? Can you find out? She's like, there's no rapid tests on Cape Cod right now. I would have to go take a PCR test and wait for three days for the result. And by three days, it it might be too late. And I don't know what to say. At this point, my head's just spinning. I'm just thinking, like, how could this happen? We did everything we were supposed to do, and, and, and now what happens? Marissa's immunocompromised. What happens if she gets sick? What happens if she comes back and I get sick? And she says, I've asked all my friends, and they don't know what I should do. What do you think? And at that moment, that guilt I felt at Ditta's casket crept back into my mind. And I found myself saying, I would feel a lot better if you came home so that I could be there to take care of you. Marissa did come home and she did test positive for COVID, which meant now I had COVID. And we went through the whole thing, felt all the symptoms, slept in separate rooms, had our groceries delivered to the door, and luckily, luckily, We came out the other side. Some people might hear that story and say they would have made a different decision, but I can tell you if I had to do it again, I would. Because after Ditta, I can't miss out on being there for someone I love again. Thank you.
0: Was Grant Bowen. As a storyteller, Grant has been seen at The Moth, Nights of Our Lives, Happy Hour Story Hour, among others. He co-produces Awkward Teenage Years, an award-winning monthly storytelling show focused on stories from middle school and high school years. He's also an actor and a writer currently living in New York City. The Story Collider is so grateful to Lauren and Grant for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Education Director Lily B., Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Ari Daniel and by Tracy Rowland and Aaron Barker, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, THE Aaron Barker will be hosting a classic Story Collider episode. Until then, thanks for listening.